This morning, it truly is a privilege to be gathered with the saints of God here on this Sunday morning with you. I want to tell you guys a little bit of a tell on myself a little bit. When I was in 10th grade, I walked into history class with Mr. Henderson and realized that this was going to be the worst year of my life. And that particular hour would be particularly terrible. So I just made some observations of this teacher. I noticed that uh, he didn't have much to offer. He was wearing a sports coat that looked like he'd found it at the Goodwill in 1932. And the, 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 the tie that he was wearing was a fat tie, which was in style, but it was the kind that was in style three times ago. And uh, they didn't even match together. And I saw this guy and I thought, what, what does he have to offer me? And as I saw the gray hair in his head, and I thought, this guy, not just is he older than me, but he's also just culturally removed from me. I didn't know how I could gain anything from this guy. I knew that this was going to be the worst hour, the worst year of my life. As a matter of fact, I didn't particularly like history. I had a disdain for it in some sense. I'm, gonna, I'm here to tell you this morning that I realized during that year that I could be wrong. That my assessment, my observations could actually not be true. I had totally undervalued Mr. Henderson. At the end of that year, as culturally different as we were, as just age separation and all life experience, we were so totally different. But at the end of that year, I had realized that I had not only gained some knowledge, not only had I had tons of fun, but I had gained a friend in Mr. Henderson. I, I didn't think I could have been that wrong. I want to ask you, have you ever been in a situation like that where you were totally off? Where you judged something, where you judged someone and you made an observation, several observations, and then you said, this is, this is what I anticipate taking place. Have you ever been wrong? Have you ever undervalued somebody or something in a similar way? Today we're going to look at, about, uh, at a guy here in 1 Samuel chapter 16 who did that very thing. He made an observation and he was wrong and the Lord corrects him. And so if you have your Bible, turn to, with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, it'll be on the screen for you this morning. As we jump into this, and right before we do, I want to help to just connect you with the greater context of what's taking place in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And so uh, Joshua, as you know, we looked at this a few weeks ago, he takes the children of Israel into the promised land. They finally get there. They have Passover for the first time. It's a, it's really, it's a huge celebration. And they end up taking the land. And, and Joshua divides the land out and says, this is where each tribe's going to go. And shortly after that, Joshua dies. They don't take the entire land. And, and the children of Israel fall into what Joshua warned them about. They fall into idolatry. Before long, they're going after other gods, and the place is just a wreck. And so God raises up judges, and they try to make the things get a little bit better, and they lead people to God, and God uses them for a time to, to release them from the oppression of the enemy. But it's just a downward spiral, spiral that just continually gets worse and worse until at the end of Judges, it's just almost just like Genesis chapter 6. Everybody doing what's, whatever's right in their own eyes. They completely disobeyed the Lord. Then they end up wanting a, a king, and the Lord raises up Saul, King Saul, and the people of Israel. That's what they wanted, and God gives them what they want, and they come to find out that that's actually not what they want either. Saul's not the kind of guy that actually is, is leading the way that the Lord would have him to lead. He ends up disobeying the Lord, and, and the, the prophet and the priest Samuel comes, and with the word of the Lord says to Saul, God is going to take the kingdom from you. He's already chosen another one that's going to take your place, that's going to rule in your stead and take the kingdom from your family. 
And that's where we pick up this morning. So Samuel, the, the priest of the land, the prophet of God, comes to, uh, comes to the land of Bethlehem and he, he's looking for the house of Jesse. God has called him and said, go and anoint one of the sons of Jesse. And so that's where we pick up 1 Samuel chapter 16. We'll read a few verses there and so follow along with me. The Bible says, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'll send you to, the, to, to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And I provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you will do. You shall anoint for me him whom I will declare to you. And Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and he thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? God, we're thankful that that is a true statement. While it could create some anxiety here this morning, we know this. Our eyes, before your eyes, we cannot be hidden. And that we may be able to trick those next to us, those in our family. We may even be able to deceive our own selves. We cannot deceive you. So before you this morning, we open our hands and we ask that you would come to us this morning, that you would teach us through your word and that we would begin to see even a little bit more this morning in a, in a manner that you see. That we would see what, what you see in us we would see what you see in those around us, and we would be encouraged by it. We ask these things in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. <coughs> Amen. So Samuel shows up there at Jesse's house, and, and they're making this sacrifice. He sees Eliab, and as soon as he sees Eliab, he begins to think, this has got to be the one. He's tall, he's dark, he's handsome, he's intelligent. Samuel's like, I don't know about you guys, but that's who I would want to be king over me. This has got to be the one. When he reaches for his anointing oil, God stops him and says, that's not him. This is not the one that I've called you here to anoint. So this is the first time that God had not given Samuel explicit instructions. If you think about it, and maybe in your reading this week, which by the way, if you're shameless plug, if you're not in the, in the reading, I want to encourage you. It's such a gift to me and to those in my D group. I know that it would be for you as well. Be reading the, the, the word together as a, as a group. Um, it's, it's, been a, it's been a wonderful thing that God has just been using in my life. But anyway, we read this week about how um, God had sent Saul or Samuel to, to anoint Saul. And God had given him the instructions. Hey, he, uh, matter of fact, he said Saul's going to be coming by. This is why he's coming by. And this is what he's going to say. And this is what you're to say. And this is how you're to anoint him. He'd given him specific instructions on how to go about anointing Saul. And it's quite different this time. God did not give him the explicit, the, 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 the detailed instructions this time. I think God is trying to teach a lesson to Samuel, and I think it's a lesson, I know it's a lesson that I can learn, and I believe it's a lesson that we could all brush up on as well this morning. Verse number seven, God said, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, 
because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord has to correct Samuel and say, don't look at his appearance. Don't look on the outside. He says, this guy's not where he needs to be. He might look like he's the right guy. He might look like a good fit. He might have all of the the tools that you might think on the outside. But he says he's not the man. It's interesting that Samuel, it appears he was falling into the very same trap that the children of Israel had fallen into when they wanted a king. God didn't want them to have a king. And Samuel told them that you don't want a king. You shouldn't want a king. This is not good for you. And, And yet they asked for it and God gave it to them. Samuel's falling into that very same thing. He's looking at somebody and saying, this is who, we need this person to lead us. We need this person to rule us. This person is worthy. And God is saying, no, it just isn't so. So you've already heard my story about how I, I misjudged someone and was wrong. Here, Samuel does the same thing. He didn't see the potential that God, God he, he saw potential that wasn't there. When the real king that God had called him to anoint would be before him, he wouldn't see the potential that God saw. This is because God doesn't look at things the way that we look at things. So this is an encouragement for us this morning as we consider this idea that our eyes can be deceived. Our eyes can be deceived. And so if you're taking notes this morning, that's one point. I'll have two big points this morning. It'll be simple. It'll be maybe even a short sermon, so hold on. But our eyes can be deceived. Our view is limited. It's one-dimensional. It's single-angle. That's all we have. And we're not to judge a book by its cover, and yet that's most often that's all we have. We just have that one cover that, that we're to, to use to, to, to judge. So our culture this morning, we, we focus a lot on, on height, and we, we focus on beauty. And God intentionally is, is showing us in the book of Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel, that that's not enough. This is one of the most descriptive books in the New Testament, or Old Testament. To date, nobody has been described yet like they have in this book. We see height, we see beauty, we see strength, we see all these things. It's a very vivid book. And God is helping us to realize that we, we, these are all one-dimensional. These are all surface-level things. And God sees something much deeper than this. We intentionally, God throws it out there intentionally and we take the bait, right? We focus on physical beauty as a metric for value so many times. Our culture is just saturated with that, right? That's that's how we judge value. Appearances. God is saying that's not enough. It's shallow. It's weak. It leaves us vulnerable. It's unreliable. In contrast to our single view, God sees things comprehensively. He sees and judges and grades the entire being where we would just see one side. He sees the entirety of the man. Psalm 139 that we read this morning. It says this, O Lord, you have searched me and you've known me. He says, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts even from afar. When I'm far away from you, you still know what I'm thinking. You know what's in my heart. You, you search out my path, my line down. You're acquainted with all my ways. David said, the psalmist says, even before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it all together. The psalmist says, before I even act, before you even, before he even comes to the outside, you know me. You know me. So neither the Lord's considerations or his abilities are the same as, as humans. 
Man looks on the outward appearance. Literally, it's with the eyes, we see the eyes. That's what it's saying. With, that's all we can see. If the eye is the gate to the soul, that's, we're stopped at the gate. We can go no farther. We can only hear what somebody might say or see what they might do, but we don't truly know what's on the heart, and that is not something that God suffers from. How many times have you been speaking with somebody and you wanted to know, are they telling me the truth? Can I trust this person? Are they reliable? And you come to the conclusion that you just don't know. You don't know if you can trust them. Are they telling you the truth? Are they really being a full disclosure with you? You just don't know. Imagine this. God has never, never suffered from that. God's never wondered what was in the heart of man. He's never wondered where somebody was at as it related to him. He knows their thoughts far off. And the Lord alone has the capacity to see past the eyes and to observe and to judge a person's heart. There's nothing that can be hid from him. There's a clue in this passage this morning as to why it's so valuable that we look at the heart, that we are able to look past the eyes and into the heart. And that's this. That whatever you do, whatever, whatever you do on the outside, whatever you wear, whatever you say, it all starts in the heart. Every bit of it. There's nothing that comes out of you or that you do that hasn't started in your soul, in your being. And God can see that. God can judge that. If you think about this, the newspapers, they only post the evil deeds. They only, they only let us know the evil acts that actually have been done in the light. They only report on what we actually know. Now, sometimes, I guess you could have some fake news out there, right? I've heard about that. But for the most part, the Herald Mail only reports on what has been seen. You might be, you might be comforted by that. You might be, be glad that the Herald Mail isn't really reporting on what has been going on in your mind this week. The evil thoughts that you thought about your boss or how you, how you daydreamed about running away or whatever it is, whatever you were struggling with this week. They're not reporting on those things. And so take heart in that. It's a false level of comfort as you consider that they, the mankind can only see the outside should actually leave you a little bit alarmed that God can see everything. God knows our hearts. He knows what's deep down inside of us even when we are far off. Even when we're far off, there's nothing that can be hid from God. So you can fake the outside. You can keep things from the, the police and from your pastor and from the Herald Mail, but you can't keep things from God. You can't fake him. You can't trick him. At some point, I think it's helpful for us to mention as we look at this truth that God looks on the heart and man looks on the outside, I think it's helpful for us to be reminded that, uh, to steer clear of this faulty idea that, that God doesn't care about what's on the outside. And that's not the emphasis here. The emphasis is this, that we are one-dimensional and God is full. That we see one side and God sees all sides. We see one level and God sees all levels. And so, and which one's more important, by the way? It's not that God says, I don't care about what's on your outside. I don't care what you look like. Of course, God cares about beauty. Look at the world that he's created. Here we are in springtime. Of course, he cares about things smelling good. Yes, he loves those things, right? As we walk down, as we drive down the city streets in Hagerstown, we smell all these blossoms and we think, man, this is good. God likes things to smell good too. He does care about the outside. 
So don't get caught up in this idea that it's only the, only the inside that God cares about. No, the reason why God cares so much about the inside is because the inside affects the outside. The inside is the true you. The one that you barely even know. The ones that, that only some can even see and at certain times and at certain levels. And God sees all the time. So the emphasis is not man's or God's limited ability or one-dimensional, but it's man's limited ability. That's the focus of this passage. So God sees the entire being. So brothers and sisters in Christ, don't use this passage in some way to, 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 to work towards lawlessness or uncleanness. That's, that's not the point. It can't be used in that way. Old Samuel, though, he, he got caught up in appearances, though. He got caught up too much in that. He saw the tall, strong man and thought, this is the man that God is going to use to lead us. And was he ever wrong? God was going to use the runt of that family. We'll look at David next week. God was going to use the man that should not, the boy, that should not have been chosen, not by man's standards. Samuel had forgotten that it, what the Israelites had known well at some point in time and that we've been reminded of recently, and that's that it's obedience to, to God. And it's his presence that's valuable. It's not man's strength or man's plans, man's appearance. It's God's presence in the life of a Christian. This is what is valuable. And so Samuel makes the mistake of getting caught up in the outward appearances. And it's interesting to note this. If you were in Samuel 16, but if you were to flip back to, to 1 Samuel chapter 1, we'd recognize that Samuel's own mother, Hannah, was a victim of this similar prejudice. Somebody was judging her from the outside and making, making uh, statements about her that weren't true. You could only see one side of this lady. Hannah was a faithful Israelite. And, and this Israelite, this Levite, he loved Hannah. But Hannah couldn't produce any children. And so, as was typical in those days, this man takes another wife. And she is able to bear children. And this creates a little bit of a, of a conflict. And to say a little bit is actually not accurate. It creates a huge conflict for Hannah. It breaks her heart that she can't bear a son for the husband that she loves. And on top of that, this other lady begins to taunt and, and to be, let's face it, a bit of a jerk to Hannah. So, as was normal uh, throughout the year, several times a year they would go uh, and they would sacrifice at the tabernacle. Faithful uh, Jews, they would go and they would, they would follow the Lord's commands there. And when they would make sacrifices there, Hannah would get on her face before God there at the tabernacle and would ask him to intervene. Faithfully, day after day, as while she was there, she would ask God to work, ask God to give her a son. She makes a, as she's there pouring her heart out, desperate, she gets judged. Look at, look at chapter 1, verse 12. We'll read a few verses here as well. Starting in verse 12, it says, As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli, the priest there, he observed her mouth, and Hannah was speaking in her heart, and only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. And therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord. I'm a woman troubled in spirit, and I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink. But I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along... I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. So as she prays, she pours her heart out to the Lord. Samuel happens by and sees her and mistakes her for a blabbering drunk. 
a worthless woman. And the word translated there, worthless, means wicked, evil, valueless. And actually, the, the, the exact phrase is sons of Belial or daughters of Belial. In the New Testament, just to kind of give you an understanding of what this word Belial means, in the New Testament, that's actually a name that's given to Satan. Son or daughter of Belial. It means worthless, evil. And the connection between worthless and evil is if you imagine Dagon, we read about him this week, I think in chapter 4, 1 Samuel. Dagon, the, the worthless god of the Philistines, is defeated by the, by the presence of God as the ark and irony is, is, is put there in the house of Dagon. And when, they, when the Philistines come back in, what do they see? Dagon, this worthless, evil idol, God that is not a God, he's a non-deity, is on the ground and in pieces. In pieces. Worthless, wicked, evil. This is a steep assessment, a, a harsh one. Samuel gives based, based on this one thing, on one level, on one time that he observes uh, Hannah there pouring her heart out to the Lord. Maybe you've experienced some of that in your life. Maybe you've experienced people judging you, mis- mistaking your heart, undervaluing your, your, your person, having misconceptions about your intentions. Maybe you're, you're there this morning while Samuel would misjudge Hannah. And while you may have been misjudged in your life, know this, find comfort in this, that God never misjudges. So if for as much as he sees the sin in our lives, he also sees the grace that he has given. He also sees the blood, Christian, he also sees the blood of his son, Jesus, that washes away all sins. When God looks at us, he sees the truth. Find comfort in that. He knows. He's never mistaken. I will never misjudge. He sees accurately. Depending on your situation, again, that may be concerning or it may be comforting. But Eli's judgment anyway, way off. Here's Hannah broken before the Lord, pouring out her soul to him, and she is mistaken for an evil, worthless drunk. And Hannah's response is, I I think, helpful for us to observe. And this isn't necessarily part of the the main focus and thrust of the sermon this morning or the the text, but I, I think it's worth noticing Her response is very helpful. Here's a few things. First, she doesn't retaliate. Here she is pouring her heart out to the Lord and somebody calls her a name like that. Imagine. Imagine how indignant you might be tempted to to feel after you've gone through all this struggle, been called names and picked on and picked at, salt to the wound. Now she's pouring her heart out to the Lord and somebody comes along and, and thinks ill of her. Many of you would be tempted to retaliate and to let this priest know what for, right? No, I would be tempted to do the same, and yet that's not how Hannah responds. She even responds with respect. No, my Lord. No. And so she doesn't respond that way to, to, to old Penaniah or Penny. She doesn't respond in anger to her as well. In a sense, she says simpler, simply what Orpah says. Gideon's father, let, let Baal contend, right? The same, uh, if, if God is true, then God will contend for me, she says. Similar to what, Gideon, what was said of Gideon. If, if Baal is true, he will take care of Gideon. And yet, Gideon lived on. And here we see that Hannah says a similar thing. God will take care of me. God will care for me. God will, God will justify me. And God will bless me. We see throughout this story that that's actually, that actually takes place, that God does repay. 
We're tempted to, to take vengeance into our own hands and God says, vengeance is mine and I will repay. So that's a great encouragement. That's a great example for us this morning to do as Hannah and not retaliate. Let the Lord defend us. But not only does she, let, uh, not, only does she not retaliate, but she asks God for help. She goes to God. So many times we try to take things into our own hands and to, to, to rally a defense for ourselves and know she goes straight to God and asks him to defend her. So Eli wasn't just wrong about Hannah, though. He was also wrong about his sons. Totally wrong about his sons. Chapter 2 uh, paints a vivid picture of how these two boys are literally out of control. Spiritually, physically, they're just literally out of control. And the story here and the language, if you, if you really focus on it, it's meant to compare both Hannah and these two sons, the two boys of, of Eli. That's quite ironic. What's, what's interesting is that this royal, barren woman who simply humbly pours out her heart to God is considered to be a vile woman and to be worthless. And yet here in chapter 2, the Bible says that Eli's sons actually were worthless. Look, look, at, look at chapter 2. We'll read verse 12 and read a few there as well. It says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Hannah was thought to be worthless and wasn't. And now the sons of Eli, they were worthless men. And they didn't know the Lord. The custom of the priest with the the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with with a three-pronged fork in his hand and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. And all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. And this is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, therefore, the fat was burned, or before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept bold meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let the let the burn let the let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I'll take it by force. And thus the sin of the young man was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. These respectable servants of Yahweh were taking advantage of their position. They were taking advantage of the authority that God had given to them. The place of servant, the position that they were given was of service. And not for themselves, but for God. And to facilitate uh, prayer, to facilitate sacrifice. And yet quite the opposite was taking place. These young men were using these opportunities to, to benefit themselves. And Eli, word begins to get around. Word will always get out. Sin will always find you out. And they get away with it for a while. And word spreads throughout the land, all the debauchery and the, and the sexual sins that they were involved in. And word gets around. And it comes back to Eli. And Eli should have taken justice into his hands. He should have dealt with them. And yet he doesn't. I think this brings us to another point this morning. So not only can our eyes be deceived, but our hearts can be deceptive. Not only can our hearts be deceived, but they can actually be deceptive. Believing things that are not true. Jeremiah seventeen nine says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And it quotes God as saying this, I, the Lord, I, Yahweh, search the heart and test the mind. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Eli's heart had deceived himself into thinking that, his, that he and his sons were better than they actually were. And that they deserved more than they actually did. 
And perhaps he thought to himself, deep down, these boys, I know I've heard these, these terrible things that they've done, but deep down, these are good boys at heart. His heart was lying to him. Believing something that wasn't true. Have you ever done that? Have you ever wanted something to be true that you knew wasn't true, but you found yourself believing it? Telling yourself that it was true and going along with it. Lying to yourself. This isn't that bad. God won't judge me for this. He'll, he'll turn a blind eye. This is what Eli's doing. So how could Eli be so blind other than just by self-deception? How could Hophni and Phinehas, or Phinehas and Fur, how could they be so blind to what was going on in their own lives? Oftentimes we judge other by their actions and we judge ourselves by our intentions. I think this is, this is often how we get away with it. We judge, our, we judge ourselves by our intentions and then we, we compare that to everybody else's actions and we say, this is what they actually did. I would never mean to do that. Even when we argue with somebody, we say things like this, you did this. When the attack is then made to us, when the accusations are then pointed to us, what do we say? Well, I didn't mean to do that. It's not fair. What are we, what are we doing to ourselves? Well, we're, we're lying to ourselves. When we compare ourselves to others, there's no competition. Why? Because they are not, they're not there to defend themselves. And this conversation in our mind goes on. There's a problem. Your heart is deceitful. It's, it's deceptive. It doesn't play fair. And the outward actions, the, the failures of those around you are so much greater than your own. And then you, you look at your good intentions. And they're terrible actions. And when this comparison actually takes place, it puffs us up. We become arrogant. We look with disdain on the worthless, evil people around us. And we think of how valueless they are. How no good and how they can't contribute to your life in any way, form or fashion. This is often characteristic of the heart of man. Deceives himself. Is it possible this morning that you've deceived your own heart? That you've done just this? As you've compared yourself to those around you? You've you stack the, the cards. The dice are loaded in your favor. You've, de- been, you've been self-deceiving. I want to challenge you to search your own heart. I warn you that that will only prove so effective. At the end of the day, we have to ask the Lord who knows our hearts for Him to search and for Him to see if there's any wicked way in us and to reveal that to us this morning. I want to encourage you to do that this morning. As we think of this idea of value, we started our time this morning with looking at value. What is value? It's not on the outward appearance. We don't find our value. It's not rested on our appearance or our strength or our bank account or the clothes that we wear or the cars that we drive. It's so much deeper than that. It's the heart that God finds value or not. And in one sense, all those who are created in the image of God, everyone in one sense has some sort of, I guess you could say, an intrinsic value that God has placed in them. And therefore, they are valuable in and of themselves. And so in some way, every person is valuable. We would say that of all life, every life is valuable. Okay? But then on another level, God would say some are valuable and some are not. Even God, the words of God say of the, the, the priest's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, that they were worthless, wicked men. And the contrast is there to say that Hannah was quite the opposite. So as God considers the value of Hannah, 
the value of these two sons, he says one is valuable and one is not. And what were their differences? We notice in Hannah's life that she pours her heart out before the Lord. In humility, she comes to the Lord and asks him to work. It's quite the opposite in the life of, of these two priests. Quite the opposite. They had contempt for the Lord in his sacrifice. They lived in arrogance. They lived in pride. They were self-serving, self-absorbed. And everything was about them. And remember, it smells a lot like who? It smells a lot like Pharaoh. The one who would abuse and take advantage of God's people. God would say, you're not to live like that anymore. Here is the law that you'll live by. You'll take a break. You'll take a rest. Hophni and Phinehas lived a life that looked more like Egypt. As a matter of fact, what's interesting is their names are actually Egyptian. But Then you have Hannah, who pours her heart out to the Lord. James 4, 6 says, he gives grace. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Psalm 51, 17 says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken spirit and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise You will find value in a broken and contrite spirit. One that's not puffed up, but one that is laid low. One that is not arrogant, but one that is humble. So as you consider your life this morning, ask yourself this question. Who are you more like this morning? Does your life look more like Hannah? Laid low, poured out before the Lord. Totally, utterly dependent on him asking him to work, or does your life look a little bit more like these two Egyptian boys, Hophni and Phineas? Self serving, arrogant, and puffed up. My encouragement for you this morning is to consider yourself. Not what your friends and family think of you, not what your pastor, your co workers, what your neighborhood looks at, what they consider. Ask yourself this, what does God see when he looks at me? Does God find value in me? Remember, it's not some weird, wacky, unfounded metric that God uses. It's a broken, contrite heart that God will not despise, that God will find value in. I'm going to ask you this. As we come to a close, I want to encourage you with this. You'd ask the Lord to search your heart and to see if there is any wicked way in you. And as you do, I'm going to just give you these two pieces of information and encouragement. As a Christian, as you strive to grow in your proximity to the Lord and and just growing closer to him, within humility, recognize this, that God will use two chief means in your life. As the Spirit of God sanctifies you, as he draws you to himself, he will use both the community of saints and his word. So as much as is possible, embrace those two means. Embrace those two means of grace that God has given to us, both his word and his church. That's how he'll sanctify you. That's how he'll humble you. That's how he'll draw you to himself. As we close this morning, I want to make an observation. Consider this idea of being misunderstood, being devalued, being confused on what actually is value and finding out how do we actually measure that. I want to offer this to you this morning, that perhaps the most misunderstood, undervalued man was Jesus himself. This morning we celebrate Palm Sunday. We celebrate the day that Jesus in Jerusalem is hailed as a great leader and welcomed in. Hosanna, Hosanna. 
They make a big to-do about Jesus coming into the city. And as they look at him, they think of him that he will rescue them from the Roman rule. That he'll rescue the Jews from the oppression that they're facing. And while that is a wonderful thing to ascribe to somebody, it was so weak. It was so small that they would only think of him as a military leader, and yet he was so much greater than that. They thought that he would remove the power of Roman rule in their lives, and he would actually be there. And that very week would remove the power of sin in their lives and make that available. Imagine that. Totally undervalued. While they praised him for for being a, a general, he was so much more than that. Just a few days later, as he would be on a cross bleeding and onlookers would look at this man and they would say he's stricken he's smitten by God he's oppressed he's rejected by God and he should be rejected by man they totally undervalued and misunderstood they misjudged the son of God as he died on that cross they looked at him and they thought death will surely swallow this man up and really what took place was he swallowed up death and hell in victory as we celebrate on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the most misunderstood, undervalued, de- de-emphasized man in the entire world. Born in a poor area, raised in a humble village, humble beginning, dirty manger, lowly carpentry, misunderstood. And for years, I totally missed the value of Jesus Christ. Maybe that's your testimony this morning too. There was a point of of time in your life where you could look back and say, I I, I undervalued the Son of God. I undervalued Jesus Christ. Maybe you would say this morning that you misunderstood Jesus, or maybe that's your testimony even now. In some way, even as you've been exposed to Jesus, that you've misunderstood who he is and what he came to do. If that's you here this morning, I want to invite you to search out Jesus for who he truly is. And to allow the the light that God would dispel and give to us as it relates to the person of Jesus Christ, that that would permeate your life. That you would see, as I do this morning, the scales falling off and allowing to see Jesus in all of his beauty and in all of his strength. Behold the Lamb of God. If we could do that this morning, we could behold the Lamb of God that takes away my sin takes away the sin of this church, that takes away the sin of the world. It's my prayer for us this morning. When you look at Jesus, what do you see? Do you find value in the Lamb of God? To the level that God does? To the level that the the Bible would declare? Or do you not? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the truths that we've seen in your word this morning. It's helpful for us to know that our eyes are weak. So many times as we walk through life, we have confidence in our own abilities. Confidence in our ability to to perceive depth. To hold things up. To build things, whatever it is. We, We have so much confidence in ourselves, but God, it's helpful for us to know that we should not have confidence in our eyes as they are limited. We can only see one dimension. In that same token, Father, we recognize that you see things as they truly are. You see behind every facade. You you see behind every fake smile. 
You see our pain, you see our suffering, you see our sin, and you extend your hand to us this morning through the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus, we thank you for that this morning. That though we esteemed you stricken, smitten of God, rejected, though you were despised, though you were devalued, and judged, you didn't retaliate, humbled yourself, became obedient to the death on the cross, purchasing our freedom. So we thank you for that truth this morning. We pray that as we meditate on that, as we make much of you this week, as we go into Friday and we consider the sacrifice on the cross, that we would be nourished by that, that we would be encouraged. And as we contemplate the heaviness of that, we would look towards Sunday hopes that you will be right that you will rise again knowing that through that power the same power that resurrected Jesus Christ is the same power that resurrects us to walk in newness of life on this earth and will one day resurrect us to, to a glorified state we, we thank you for these truths pray that we again would be nourished throughout the week through these and we pray this in the name of Jesus